I really enjoyed reading Raising Hell. This is the first book I've read in 2020, and it was a great way to start off the new year. A fun, seriously, a fun read. Your book is out, and it's called Backstage Tales from the Lives of Metal Legends, Raising Hell. It is out Tuesday, January 7th. You can pre-order it, I'm sure, on Amazon, on uh, all the major booksellers. But boy, what a fun read. How long has this book been in the making? Well, I've been working on it, really. It was a two-year project, pretty much, from start to finish. And almost all of the interviews came specifically from conversations done for the book. There were some outtakes that had come from archival interviews I've done over you know, the past 25 years. But I went in this very focused, knowing exactly which questions I wanted answered. And uh, as opposed to you know your general interview where you're looking more for a history of the band and the progression and the development over the years, different styles, the ups and downs. With this, I just wanted to focus on the kind of tales of outrage and, you know, get a sense of the lifestyle and culture of metal. Well, I'll tell you what, with all of the uh, different chapters and the different uh, stories that you had, which we'll talk about throughout this conversation, it's like, holy cow, some crazy, crazy stuff happened. Did you have a lot of stories that you may have left out of this book because they didn't cut it or you had to trim fat? Yeah, I sure had to trim fat, and it was tough. (laughs) But the thing is, there are certain stories that are kind of universal, so once you have four or five stories of people falling off stage or, you know, different people telling you about how they bounce back from alcoholism, you really kind of have to pick and choose. And for the most part, went with the best ones. I wanted to get a balance of true legends, the kind of icons of the industry, with some of the newer bands who are legends in their own right, but they don't have that kind of marquee appeal or uh, success that someone like uh, Corey Taylor of Slipknot has. Ben Weinman from... uh... Dillinger Escape was in there with a bunch of great stories. Paige Hamilton from Helmet. You had Geezer. You had Tony Iommi sharing stories. Tommy Lee's malfunction hanging upside down was a pretty wild story. It was really fun. And the book flowed well. It was easy to read. Did you meet a lot of resistance or any resistance? And were there people who were like, man, I don't know if I really feel like sharing any stories? Well, the resistance I ran into really took place before any interviews happened happened. Iron Maiden are very resistant to do any interviews for any book. The same with Metallica and Ozzy doesn't really do specific interviews for specific books. So what I used was archival material I had, you know, that I didn't have in Louder Than Hell or hadn't been in print in a long time. But having done interviews for 25 years or so, I kind of have a good sense of who has great stories to tell and who just kind of goes with the rehearsed playbook when they do their interviews. So I knew the creative individuals and uh, the people who, who really didn't care about burying their souls or revealing uh, debaucherous stories uh, because they have wives and kids. There was a lot of cherry picking going on, which is basically why you have the icons like Rob Halford and Glenn Tipton and then Dee Snyder. And then, you know, you don't have certain other people from that generation of that era, the Scorpions, for instance. I, I love them to death, but they're a very straightforward kind of static type of interview. Whereas I knew that Dave Windor from Monster Magnet is just an outrageous kind of guy and smart and funny. So I always kind of erred when it came to smart and funny because I didn't just want a bunch of people telling the same old stories in a dry way with no zing to it. I kind of wanted a beginning, middle, and end to the stories that were told. The stories I read about Dave Windorf were fantastic. I love Dave Windorf. You're right. You have these personalities that told these great stories. You know, you had all these fun people who don't mind bearing their souls. Al Jorgensen's another person who I've enjoyed interviewing over the years who has no problem bearing his soul and that guy is so 
smart. Actually, I had the pleasure of working with him on his memoir, Ministry, uh, The Lost Gospels According to Al Jurgensen. Yes. That's what it was. And uh, that was a blast. That was two weeks spent with him in El Paso, Texas, just in various states of coherence. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. It was, uh, yeah, and him just, just regaling me with tales. But, you know, that was another book from another era. So uh, yeah. I was just knew that he was a fantastic storyteller. So I came back to him with this, and, and, and he was happy to, uh, uh, you know, get back with me for some uh, more yarn telling. Oh, yeah, that guy's got some some great yarns, and the way he tells his stories is fantastic. One of the things that I noticed is, and I know metal is a male-dominated industry, but more and more now you have a lot of females. There weren't as many females in the book as I guess I expected to hear. Did you have a hard time getting females to talk about some of these incidents? Well, that was part of it. I did want to bring a good female presence into the book, but it was tough to get certain people. Lita Ford has her own book, for instance, and I guess didn't want to cannibalize her own creation. But the girls from Kitty were great. They were forthcoming. And, you know, I talked to Lizzie Hale from Hailstorm. She was pretty entertaining. She's careful with what she says. She's uh, smart, savvy, really a businesswoman. And you're not going to get the kind of stories out of someone like her or even someone like a male musician with those same kind of characteristics as you're going to get from you know, uh, Carla from the Butcher Babies, for instance, who who did tell some slightly more uh, outrageous kind of things. Yeah, I agree. I would have liked to have more of a female presence, but I had a bunch of them. I wanted to get uh, Lacuna Coil singer Christina, but she was not available at the time, unfortunately. They were working on a record, and so much of it comes down to who you can reach at what time, and eventually you've got to turn in the book. So I I would have been able to get Christina because she was working on the next album, but the deadline just hit us in, in the long run. And we said, well, how essential is she to this book? And it wasn't uh, a do or die to have her or not have her. But I think she's a great talent, and I would have loved to have her in the book. You have 17 chapters in the book. Did you have to cut any chapters, or how did you go about designing or developing the chapters you did? Because each one of them is very specific. You talk about trashing hotels, venues, and buses. You've got one, Laugh, I Nearly Bought One, which is about practical jokes and pranks and other antics on tour and in recording studios and things like that. And some of those stories are absolutely off the hook. I think it was either Geezer or Tommy talking about uh, a boat. I'm, and I don't want to give it away because I want people to read. You do have a chapter on groupies. You also have a chapter on uh, vomiting, uh, addiction. You talked about that, fighting, legal. Some of the arrest stories are crazy. Corey Taylor's arrest story is pretty nuts. There were a few in there that I was like, holy cow, or some of their hassles with the police, their close scares. I mean, some of those stories were nuts, and it's pretty amazing that they were pretty forthcoming about some of those stories. Well, everyone who did the book or talked to me for the book knew what the chapters would be about. Now, some of them wouldn't talk about certain chapters, and I gave them that out very easily, but everyone knew what I was looking for specifically in the book, knowing that I was going to pick from a wide range of metal musicians from really the 70s to the present day. I kind of had to have some sort of structure for it all. They were just going to be a bunch of wild stories. I wasn't telling a history. I already kind of did that with my first book that I did with Catherine Turman, Louder Than Hell, which chronicled metal as an oral history from 
the 60s to the present. But when I did that book, I read it back, and even when I was working on it, I found some of the best parts weren't really the stories of who met who when and how the band got signed. And, you know, these are the important parts to a band's history. But what I thought was most interesting were the oddball occurrences that happened during a band's career. Or, for instance, when Pantera got signed, it was at a birthday party, and they were throwing cake at each other, and, and they had no expectations of being signed. They thought the A&R guy who came to see him had already left. And it was great to have them louder than hell. That was a little little bit of another obstacle. Couldn't approach some of the well-worn metal trope and uh, legends. Why? The, well, I felt like to talk about the Metallica bus crash, for instance, in the Highway to Hell chapter just would have been overkill because it's already been talked about to death. Yeah. And I had that in Louder Than Hell. Or to talk about Ozzy biting the heads off of bats and birds. Again, that was addressed in Louder Than Hell. And some of these things are all over behind the musics and in books and, and movies. And yeah, documentaries. I kind of wanted to bring up a new wave of stories and legends. So for the most part, I kind of steered clear of some of the things that everybody already knows. So I had to break these down into chapters. And I started thinking of Corey Taylor's first book, which was The Seven Deadly Sins and how he organized his book into all the sins that can be committed. And then I thought of sort of the inverse of that, which could be maybe the commandments of metal, which would be inverse, thou shalt kill, thou shalt sorry, thou shalt kill brain cells, thou shalt steal, thou shalt... But there were too many obstacles there. You don't, can't really commit adultery, or at least talk about it on tape or camera. So I thought, well, how can this be broken down in a way it's easily digestible, identifiable, and, you know, coherent? And I thought, well, why don't we look at these as different behaviors and find songs, because there's a metal song about everything, Truly. songs that, that match the uh, appropriate behaviors. So then you have Girls, 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 which is a chapter about groupies, women who help guys get their bands going, and girls who are in bands on their own, although I guess it's mostly about groupies. <laughs> and that's, of course, named after a Motley Crue song. And then there's a Welcome to Hell, which is named after a Venom song, and that's all stories of the occult and paranormal. So, yeah, I left out some things. I wanted to have a UFO chapter, but I just didn't have enough material, and the material I had wasn't strong enough. Then on the other hand, when I did Die With Your Boots On, which is named after an Iron Maiden song, mm -hmm all about near-death experiences. An awful lot of them were about car crashes or bus crashes or vans flipping over. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I can't have all of these just at the back of the chapter. It skews towards something else. I thought, well, I'll just make it its own chapter. So that became Highway to Hell, and I was able to get enough of those stories. And, and it amazes me, really, that these musicians will just get in the van and drive through horrible winter snowstorms in Canada or, or, or you know, in Buffalo. In Europe and the north countries yeah and just drive deadly terrain and these, these ice storms and with the snow and skidding everywhere and just kind of praying they make it at the end and do this all the time some of them crash have horrible experiences and then they get back on the horse so to speak and that to me is just a real testament to their uh, dedication i don't think people realize how hard life on the road is you through some of your stories, which are hilarious, being practical jokes, being the rough, being the good, being the partying, no matter what it is, you get a feel that life on the road really, really is tough, and it comes across in the book. 
Right, and that's part of the lifestyle of the metal musician. They're on the road so constantly, and what is there to do when you're on the road? You know, you're, you're in the van for or the bus for six to ten hours, and you've just played this show that euphoric about, you're still flying high, so you have a huge bucket of leftover booze from your rider, so you're going to end up drinking it, or smoking some weed, or doing some blow, or whatever. It just kind of goes with the territory. I certainly don't want to endorse these things, but through the history of metal and rock and roll, I think in general, it's been a pretty easy road to get hold of these kinds of substances, and those who've been able to either avoid them or use them in moderation have come out okay, and then unfortunately, there's been way too many people that have not been able to contain themselves and have either died or had to almost die and then realize that that wasn't the way they wanted to go out, and they, they turned their lives around. People like Phil Anselmo and Al Jorgensen, and you know, the list goes on and on, and Rex Brown and the guys in I Hate God. I think that's an amazing story, too. The one thing I didn't want this book to be, and it's a little hard because at the same time I wanted it to be this to a certain extent, is a book about debauchery and decadence and, you know, just complete metal outrageousness because I think that stuff is fun and interesting. Certainly it's a nice vicarious thrill if you're not living that way, but you like to read about it, kind of in almost a true crime sort of kick. But I thought if I just did that, it would kind of almost endorse those activities and cheapen the book. So I figured out that if I put a lot more substance in about things that happen on the road or falling off stages or you know, bleeding or being in the mosh pit, you know, worst mosh pit experiences. And then my favorite chapter is actually the This Was Spinal Tap chapter. Every band you talk to, you know, for many, many years, I've always said, hey, what's your favorite Spinal Tap story? You know, something that could have happened in Spinal Tap but didn't. And I've heard some insane hysterical things over the years. You know, props that didn't work or, uh, no, I'm not going to give away what's in the book, but, but there's lots and lots of things that you can imagine that go wrong in the world of metal. And every metal musician will say, Spinal Tap is a movie about my band. Um, because yeah. it's just so well constructed. And so, so I thought that chapter was a lot of fun. And some guys gave me some really, really funny stories of their tap-like experiences. Overall, I really wanted this to be a fun and entertaining read for the metal fan. And also provide maybe a little bit of insight into what the tour life is all about. And uh, I hope it does reach beyond just metal crowd, but I think it's pretty much a love letter to metal. I think the metal crowd is going to absolutely eat this one up because seriously, it is a fun read. On page 143, also on 145 and 146, Nurgle's, and this is in the Welcome to Hell chapter where there's some wild stories, Nurgle's summation of who he is is really fucking rad. <laughs> it's really just fucking rad, and I don't know how to say it other than that. He would be really fun to chat with. He's an intelligent guy. Very he, intelligent. Yeah, and you know who else? Eric Danielson from Watain is not probably someone I'd want to be friends with, but God, the guy's really smart and has a very philosophical perspective on the occult and Satanism, mm -hmm. and man, he's dedicated to the uh, all things evil and, and nefarious, but he lives it, and he yeah. can talk about why he lives it and how he lives it, and to me, that's kind of amazing. If I want anybody who wants to see Watain that you very well may end up with a noxious odor of decaying animal corpses right in the middle of the stage that will offend you throughout. If the band doesn't throw pig's blood at you, you're lucky. Although they don't do that as much as they used to, but they used to do that in every show. And talk about a band kind of living it as they believe it. And some of the other things that blew me away in that chapter, Ozzy had no idea what Mr. Crowley looked like. <laughs> or Anton LaVey looked that. like. That is just crazy. 
crazy to yeah. think about. If you want good Aussie stories, you don't talk to Ozzy, you talk to Zach Wild. <laughs> and, uh, of course, they're pals, and Zach is an amazing storyteller. Yes, he is. Again, another character I knew would be a guy who would just tell funny, wild anecdotes. And Max Cavalera from Sepultura and Soulfly uh, is, is much the same way. But, yeah, Zach pulls no punches when it comes to stories about Ozzy. Oh, yeah. Not knowing who Mr. Crowley was, that was pretty, as I understood. In the mosh pit, Scott Ian talking about Cotton Amash and playing the Rainbow Music Hall in Denver in 86. I saw the Lords of the New Church there. I saw Men Without Hats there. I saw Wall of Voodoo there. I saw Black Flag there with Nig Heist opening up for him. So mm. I saw some great shows at the Rainbow. And so it brought me back to an old place. Also in the mosh pit, I forgot about this, the crowd surfing brass knuckle assholes. I remember that back That's in the right. days. And you brought that up and there were a few stories about that that were just crazy. I'm not sure if it's in this book, but there were guys who had razor blades between their fingers. Mm-hmm. I think Billy, uh, Billy Krause today talks about that. And they would storm through the pits, swinging their fists with razor blades in the middle, cutting guys' backs open. It's terrific stuff. Seems like mosh pit antics, not antics, but the mosh pit from the hardcore movement started out as something that was uh, unifying and fun. And then almost as the second or third wave of hardcore evolved, it became much more about trying to hurt the guy next to you and less unifying. I'm sure I'll probably get lots of <laughs> Complaints about that. One of the things that I found really interesting is there were a lot of Philadelphia stories in this book from a lot of different bands. Yeah, it's funny. I don't know why that is exactly. I think it's just kind of a fluke, really. It's kind of funny, though, because one of my editors is from Pennsylvania. And any time a Pennsylvania anecdote came up, he would private message me and like, yeah, I went to that venue or yeah, hometown love or whatever. And it's not like I purposely kept the Philadelphia stories in. But I think you have these kind of iconic cities where things tend to go down and uh, those being you know New York, Boston, Philadelphia, LA to a certain extent, Chicago I guess and I'm sure there are more. There are these big cities where lots of people come to the shows and it's not all people who come in from the same perspective or socioeconomic backgrounds and there was a lot of friction especially when punk and metal eventually saw eye to eye but for a while there was a great disparity between the two and, Mm -hmm. and a lot of animosity and then skinheads were misunderstood because not all skinheads were Nazi punks, mm-hmm. but some were, and the uh-huh. Nazi bands would come to the metal band shows and Sig Heil them, and there's a, quite a few stories in the book about that. Yeah. I, I like one where Paige Hamilton is being Sig Heiled, and he talks to the guy who was doing it and you know, says, look, get the hell out of here if you're going to do that, but if you want to be with the fans and here and enjoy the show, don't do that shit. And the guy stopped doing it. You know, he said he felt like he had maybe put a little bit of uh, wisdom into this guy's thick skull. And then there's an even funnier, well, that's not funny, but there is a story from Billy Grazi Day of, of Biohazard about Nazi skinheads also that is just hysterical. Uh-huh. I remember that one. <laughs> Those guys, the Biohazard dude had some great stories. The guy from Skeleton Witch had some great stories that was in uh, the book as well. And then there were a few. I'm trying to think who some of the other. Here we go. Oh, and the Wall of Death I wanted to talk to you about. Those pits were crazy. Yes, yes, they sure were. And uh, although it was something that originated in the hardcore scene and was going on with Sick of It All, it really came to prominence with Lamb of God. And at first it was something that they took great uh, thrills in because, you know, God, to see one side of the audience and the other side of the audience suddenly run towards each other and clash in the middle. And as their crowds got bigger and bigger, they realized that, man, this is getting dangerous and people were getting hurt. So they put the kibosh on that. And fortunately, it doesn't happen too much anymore. But uh, 
The ones with everybody having people on their shoulders, the double-decker walls of death. Yeah. What is there, the chicken fighting wall? Yeah, yes, that's what they... <laughs> people get nuts, but you know what? It's a great way for people to channel their energy and get their energy out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it really is. In the mosh pit. And when I finally was kicked in the head at a show when I was near the front row, I realized that, okay, you know, maybe it's time to step back closer to the bar and watch the show from there. <laughs> I forgot about this one, and I'm looking at my notes. Tony Foresta's story on 164 about the really tall hot girl just taking a pee in the middle of the pit and walking uh, off. Yeah, it's just one of those things. I mean, I knew that the mosh pit chapter would be filled with stories of violence and kind of insanity, but there are these really strange things that people have seen in the pit as well. And, you mm-hmm. know, they go beyond, like the cannibal corpse saw a couple having sex at the front of the pit. And yeah, mm-hmm. that's pretty wild. But then some of the other stories about, like, someone like you said, a girl just, just moshing around and then suddenly taking a pee or uh, a group of people showed up at, uh, I, I think it was it was one of the grindcore bands, Cattle Decapitation, and uh, they just all lined up and did this pyramid in the middle of the mosh pit in the middle of the show. <laughs> it's like, yeah. wow. That's kind of crazy. Kind of lunatic, you know, mm-hmm. thing that goes along with metal is the unpredictability, and that's part of the fun of it is the outrage and the unpredictability, and unfortunately a lot of that's been lost, I think, because of the way a lot of venues have really been hit with lawsuits and have really come down hard on anyone that kind of doesn't follow the, the, the norm, the, the rules. What I think my maybe looking through my notes, uh, maybe my favorite chapter was Die With Your Boots On, because there is a lot of truth to that, and you state this in the opening, a ton of rockers have cheated death multiple times. Yep. Some of those stories are crazy. The John Gallagher, Mark Gallagher story is absolutely nuts. Jeff Becerra getting shot is completely insane. Mm. Benali and Halford's close calls were crazy. Fear Factory's Dino getting a gun pulled on him on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Holy Buzz Osborne passing a kidney stone on tour. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just a small amount of some of those stories. I mean, these are crazy stories. Right. Well, I got lucky with the guys who I, I talked to. That I, I knew they had things to say. A lot of them had lived crazy lives and uh, were happy talking about it. But, uh, yeah, some of the stories you mentioned, sometimes you just get lucky and someone mm-hmm. has an amazing story you couldn't even have imagined. There's some stuff where a guy from a band that's not... Not legendary in this kind of way of being well known, but is legendary in being the ultimate of metal behavior was uh, named King Fowley mm-hmm. and uh, deceased. And man, does he have some wild tales. Those stories are crazy. <laughs> I didn't even mention him yet, but yeah, some of his stories, I just was reading them and going, holy fuck. Yeah, those are mostly the NSFW stories. In Chapter 4 with the vomiting, Frankie Benali's story epitomizes the 80s on page 90. Randy Blythe on just an incident with the uh, persons on the side stage. Dave Draymond with the, in the groupies, you know, with what happened to him in Paris. Hilarious. Absolutely yeah. hilarious. And the fact that he would tell that story and be able to laugh about it is really cool on Dave Draymond's part, who, by the way, is a very cool guy anyways. Yeah, it's true, because he's past that level of stardom where people are going to scrutinize everything he says, and there's so many metal websites that are looking for clickbait. So a lot of these guys have gotten really careful. I don't think most of the interviews you read in magazines and on websites have the type of candor that the ones in the 80s and 90s had, because, first of all, there's cell phone 
phones everywhere, so these guys are yeah. being filmed all the time, so they're probably not going to get quite as crazy as they might have otherwise. But then also, I think maybe the outrageous behavior and, and the lunacy of hair metal and new metal and even thrash, some of that seems to have dissipated a bit. I don't think the newer bands are into that kind of lifestyle as much. So to a certain extent, this is a story of metal culture and metal lifestyle up through, I guess, the end of the 90s or so. And you probably still find some of that with today's metal bands, but there seems to be more of a stranglehold on metal behavior now than there used to be. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because it's so hard to make it in the industry that these bands go out of their way to be as acceptable and as popular as they can be without offending anybody by making music that's you know appeals to safe. the greatest amount of people by taking the fewest chances. No, I agree with that. I think uh, there's a lot more safety in music now, but the record industry has changed so much from the 80s. In the 80s, when we were younger, they went on tour to support albums. Albums were where the bands made all their money on album sales and 45 right. sales. Now it's completely 100% the opposite, where the bands make all the money on tour and the albums and the new music supports their live shows. Right, and they've got to be able to perform night after night. So they're doing three quarters of the year now instead of half of the year, and they've got to be on. So, you know, they're probably a little more lucid. And when you're dealing with all the bands who are in the book who have the stories, most of them are telling these stories because they're stories from the past and things they laugh about and experiences they had but have overcome. What I thought was interesting was you have Mark Morton from Lamb of God, and he was very resistant to tell any wild tales of uh, alcoholic inebriation debauchery mm-hmm. because he said, look, this is stuff that's happened to me and some of it was funny and I don't regret it, but if I didn't get myself out of that place, if I didn't change my lifestyle, I was going to die. And to me, that's not funny. And I, I respect him for saying that, you know, I, that's totally cool, man. You're one of the greatest guitarists from newish metal bands, although you've been around a long time now. <laughs> and he's got a new acoustic one now out too, I think, an EP. I haven't seen the EP yet. I had read that it was coming out. I did not realize that it had come out yet. That's respectful because Randy Andy Blythe was very forthcoming. I know he had written a book a few years ago, but he was very forthcoming about his alcohol, and he's always seemed to be very forthcoming, very straight up, and very honest about who he is as a person. But without glamorizing it. And that's that's the real difference that you'll find between Love Him to Death, uh, Dave Window from Monster Magnet, and Randy Blythe. Randy knows what decisions he's made in his life and the damage that he caused when he was uh, making those decisions. And he looks back at it now, and he, well, he doesn't say it was a waste of a life or, you know, it was something he wholeheartedly regrets. He lays it on the line and says, look, this is the good and bad stuff that goes on when you're drinking from morning till night. And a lot of it's pretty scary, and a lot of it's not so good. You're right. And there are a few people that relay that message with the substances. And one of the common reoccurring themes in the drug chapter was, I'm lucky I'm alive. I'm lucky I'm alive. I'm lucky I'm alive. And right. I, I read that many a times. But I also give respect to Phil Anselmo for uh, calling somebody out in your book <laughs> as well. I agree 100% on that. I do too. And I think it was ballsy for him to say. And totally, it is 100% true. And uh, Phil has always sung about heroin and he's always addressed his demons completely without celebrating them. You know, he's always sung them with self-deprecation and anger and, and they've been cautionary tales. And I do have a great amount of respect for him for that. Because even, again, love him to death, Al Jurgensen, when he's telling stories about the things he did when he was on heroin, you could piss yourself laughing. I mean, just some of it's just so 
absurd or hysterical. And again, at the end of the day, he's going to say, boy, I'm glad I got clean. But they are different perspectives on the subject. And I wanted to get that. I wanted to get all these metal dudes and say, you know, tell me your story. Mm-hmm. Say, make me laugh. Make me shudder. Make me almost puke. Mm-hmm. And with the vomit chapter, that's when I was debating not including. But something perverse in me said, I, you know, got to have puke stories. Got to have them. Because Jesus, if you're in a band or if you've toured with a band or even if you've just partied your ass off, you're going to have bad nights. And <laughs> oh, absolutely. And end with toilet bowl worship. <laughs> and some of those are funny. For the most part, I avoided the ones where, you know, oh man, I just drank too much and got so, so sick. I'll never do it again. I really prefer a story that has some strange or entertaining angle to it. I think these stories all came across very well. And you did a great job putting this book together. If the whole heavy metal thing wasn't called heavy metal, would it still be what it is today? That's an interesting question, really, because I don't think people even like to call it heavy metal now. For the most part, it's just metal. I don't think anyone says, I'm in a heavy metal band, unless it's Judas Priest. And a lot of bands don't even want to be considered metal. Lemmy never wanted to be thought of as a metal musician with Motorhead. And uh, Black Sabbath still say, we're a rock and roll band. You know, We're not metal. You know, maybe people say we started this thing called metal, and a lot of the characteristics of it came from our sound, which it surely did. But a lot of people don't like that term, metal. And I don't think it matters, really. I think metal, because, I, you know, in the 90s, I was loving bands that had that attitude and aggression, but clearly weren't metal. You know, Jesus Lizard, Janitor Joe, The Cows, The Melvins, all the Melvins, borderline metal. Mm-hmm. But uh, And that's actually why I did include some of them in the book. You'll find that uh, Buzz Osborne is in the book, and uh, Dave Navarro from Jane's Addiction is in the book, because Dave does have his metal side, even though Jane's were not a metal band. But to me, if music has a uh, rebellious attitude to it and brings out a lot of passion, whether it's anger or euphoria or aggression, and there's loud, there's kind of a loud foundation to it, then you can call it whatever. It could be metal, it could be industrial, it could be grunge. I don't think the name metal is essential. In fact, compared to an awful lot of other forms of music, it kind of describes the genre the least. I do a podcast called The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll with, we did an overview of heavy metal, and we came across a paper that a lady wrote as her thesis asking the question. Would have you, would the metal lifestyle be what it is today were it under a different name? And I think hmm. it's a fascinating question to ask because if you look at where metals come from, from back in the late 60s, early 70s with some of the bands, Sabbath, Zeppelin, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Alice Cooper was mentioned quite a bit as an influence in your book. Sure, yeah. So, I think he was important as a character that created the metal drama and the metal theatricality, but musically, a lot of his songs are much more kind of straight rock and roll. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, but you say that would metal be metal if it wasn't metal? No, would, um, would it still be the thing that it is today? Well, we're the who. I mean, look at the way people react to the who. Mod or punk, maybe? I don't know. Uh, the Kinks might have been punk or metal. I, it just gives the whole music movement a, a different perspective as far as looking at it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think categorization, as much as I'm guilty of it, I think it can be limiting to bands and to people who are looking to find music they like. Because if you limit yourself to just quote-unquote metal, 
you know, you're missing out on a whole lot of music you might love because it has that same attitude and that same style of aggression, but doesn't fall under that banner. And the musicians who play it might despise metal. So I think you can listen to the Swans, and there are elements of metal in that. You can listen to uh, dating way back to Stooges. There's elements oh, of metal yeah. in that. And it's attitude, and, and it's in your face. And Iggy Pop was just as messed up as Al Jurgensen ever was. <laughs> and they're just as smart as one another, too. They could really have a great caged uh, battle, although I guess Iggy would win because he keeps himself in immaculate shape for, what is he, 90 now? I mean, Something like that. He's like 85, 90. Uh, <laughs> and the guy looks amazing. He does look amazing. Dude's still got a six-pack. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this, John. What did you learn about yourself during the writing of this book? What did I learn about myself? That's a tough one. I feel like one of those Democratic candidates who's on the uh, stage during the debate. <laughs> your question and has to answer it. Like, if you're the sixth person to answer it, you have a much better chance of saying something sensible. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I really learned that I have a good sense of how to extract interesting stories about people and their lives without intimidating them in any sense. People tell me things and seem to be happy uh, relaying tales without any sort of fear that there are going to be repercussions. Uh, I don't really do interviews ever to throw anyone under the bus. There are a few examples in my history where I've had unhappy interactions with bands, but for the most part, at least anyone in the book is someone who I'd talked to many times before and was happy to be in the book and talk about the subject matter within. But I think if you approach these subjects with a combination of levity and sincerity, which sound like they're kind of opposites, but you have to be empathetic and at the same time not look like you're on 60 Minutes trying to grill someone. It's like, you know, hey, you know, tell me the wildest thing that happened. I mean, you know, and then you'll have to follow up frequently because someone will say, oh, man, I, I don't know, something wild. Boy, you know, every day is wild. Every we drank. I, I can't remember what happened when I drank. Uh, well, you know, can you think of one time? Or well, how about when you're on this tour? Or, you know, there are ways to kind of get people to remember things kind of uh, bring things back to their mind that they might otherwise have forgotten or just not have uh, not have remembered, forgotten, same thing. And my second to last question, why should somebody who is not a fan of metal read this book? Well, I think anyone interested in learning about a certain lifestyle, a certain uh, culture, anyone's sociology would find this interesting because there are stereotypes about metal and people have watched behind the music and people have these sort of ideas of what the genre has entailed. And a lot of that is based on actual behaviors and, and actual experiences that these guys did go through and did exhibit. But I think there's more to it, and I think there's a lot more humor, and I think reading these guys, you can sense that they're not all overinflated, egotistical, you know, testosterone pump dude, which I think is a stereotype of metal musician, <laughs> kind of a lunkhead, troglodyte. Um, <laughs> and they're not, you know. A lot of these guys are smart and funny, self-deprecating, and... Great uh, musicians. At times. So I think you really do find some really thoughtful answers within all of the lunacy. Great musicians, too. Yeah. Phenomenally, yeah, insanely talented musicians. To be that talented and to have some of these antics gauged in some of these behaviors go on the next night and slay is just unbelievable. <laughs> that Zach Wilde can play like Zach Wilde or could play like Zach when he was in the throes of alcoholism and touring with Ozzy. Mm -hmm. you got to tip your hat to the guy. Absolutely. Maybe he wasn't doing good things, but God. He was playing like a monster. And my last question, John, your favorite song of all time. 
one song would be hard. I, th- I think the best thing to do would be to say what metal song, uh-huh. and I would have to say that it would be one I will pick because of the significance and, and history that it has for me, and that would be Judas Priest's Hellbent for Leather, because when I was just discovering metal and uh, getting into bands like Sabbath and Rush, although they're not metal or vaguely not metal or were metal but then weren't. But when I was just kind of discovering yeah. loud music, one of my first cousins introduced me to Judas Priest's Killing Machine or Hellbent for Leather, called Killing Machine in Europe. But that's the lead-off song, and it starts with these motorcycles revving and these, these churning, chugging guitars. And I just heard it, and I was like, holy crap, this is just heads and tails above anything I've heard before. It really got me started on that metal track and then of equal value, I think, would be uh, Angel of Death by Slayer, which was <laughs> an absolute force of extremism and accessibility that they somehow put together into this really uh, heavy, lethal, controversial, everything that metal should be and uh, is at its best. Well, thank you very much for your time, John. And I will tag you on my social media page. Um, That'd be awesome. Yeah, and do I'll that. follow you, follow me, all, all that good stuff. Good stuff. And, and uh, Thank you very much for your time. Thanks again for the conversation, John. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Yeah, thank you. It was a good interview. Appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. Bye-bye.